welcome to a bonus box of Warhammer 40k's Grim History from the Beyond. I am Zekthar, and today I will give chronicling to the Imperial Cult. Although, to do this justice, we have to go back to before the beginning, to when the Emperor expunged all religion on Terra during the Unification Wars. <clears throat> now, during this time, the Emperor himself declared that mankind would never be free to progress and advance to its destined position as the preeminent intelligent species in the Milky Way galaxy until <clears throat> the last stone from the last church was cast down onto the last priest. So he purged Old Earth of all its ancient religions and superstitious beliefs, even going so far as to personally witness the destruction of the final church on Terra's ancient soil after engaging its resident holy man, Uriah Ulithar in a battle of ideals, wit, and dogma. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't go into a little more detail on this meeting, for it shows a little bit of the Emperor's character, and Uriah foretells of the Imperial cult and the doom it would bring on humanity. Now, Uriah Ulithar was born on ancient Terra in the 30th millennium, shortly before the start of the Unification Wars. The youngest son of wealthy parents, he spent his youth drinking and rebelling against authority especially that of the emperor whose forces had begun to assume control over ever larger portions of Terra. After a difficult encounter with a squad of thunder warriors who whipped his dislike of the Imperium into hatred, Ulithar made for the town of Aveldrol, where the local governor had rebelled against the emperor, and participated in the Battle of Guadir, where the massive rebel force was slaughtered almost to the last man by a battalion of thunder warriors. Wounded, Ulithar fled and received what he believed was a vision of God himself, who healed him and told him, Why do you deny me? Accept me, and you will know that I am the only truth and the only way. The shaken and broken Ulithar then returned home, only to discover that his family had been murdered by Scandian raiders, and their holdings plundered while he was away. Remembering his vision, he entered the Church of the Lightning Stone and started a new life as a humble friar, one who preached kindness and offered assistance to any who came into his sanctuary. This he did for almost 40 standard years as the Unification Wars slowly came to their conclusion, and the atheistic creed of the imperial truth favored by the emperor spread across Terra, and fewer and fewer faithful came to Ulithar's church, until that fateful rainy night. Now we will get into the imperial truth in a minute, but for now, just know that it is an atheistic, rationalist, and materialist ideology defined by the core value of reason respect for the mythology of science and secular progress. Yet, where, where was I? Oh yes, so it came to pass that on an especially rainy night, a strange noble, garbed in plain clothes, arrived at the church just before midnight's sermon, introducing himself only as Revelation. The stranger said he wanted to speak to Ulithar and understand what kept him chained to faith in the light of the advances of science and reason. Unbeknownst to Ulithar, the man was actually the emperor himself, veiled by a psychic illusion to appear as a normal human. However, Ulithar immediately sensed that something was amiss about this visitor, although he could not understand what it was. Despite the initial misgivings, Ulithar graciously invited his visitor inside and led him to his church's most treasured possession, a masterfully painted mural fresco by the noted artist Essendula Verona, depicting mythic events from Terra's past. Ironically enough, one of the scenes was a stylized depiction of the fight between the Emperor and an entity later called the Dragon of Mars that was actually a katan known as the Void Dragon that had occurred millennia earlier in what was once known as ancient Libya. Now, mind you, dear listeners, 
The Emperor of Humanity didn't even know this, but it truly was a Catan. Call me a heretic if you wish, but uh, that's really what it was. Anyways, Araya used the fresco splendor as a proof of divinity, stating that the artist had been touched by the divine to bring into being such grandness. Revelation was moved by the fresco's beauty, but bluntly countered Olathair's argument by stating that while Asandula Verona had certainly been a woman of incredible vision and talent, what had moved her was money and not the power of God. Refusing to be daunted by Revelation's lack of faith, Olathair led him to his quarters, where they could continue their discussion more easily, sharing a bottle of wine. It must be noted that at this point the two came to an agreement. The wine was indeed delicious. <laughs> As they sipped and enjoyed the savory fermentation of the grape, Revelation confirmed that Olathair's church was the last one on Terra, and that he had been tasked by a decree of the emperor to destroy it. But he wished for no violence, and once again reiterated that he wanted to understand humanity's need for faith first. He simply wanted to know why an intelligent man such as Uriah would follow a path of faith, as opposed to scientific knowledge. The concept of faith was beyond the man known as Revelation. Yet Olathair was a teacher, a priest, and though he knew he was speaking on deaf ears, he truly tried to explain faith to a man who had no understanding of it. Uriah scooped up his cup and gestured to his patron to follow him. As he walked the sacred halls, he attempted to explain how faith appeared from unexplainable facts as reassuring explanation of the course of events in human life, citing the history of his own church of the Lightning Stone. Revelation then bluntly stated that the founder of the church of the Lightning Stone might have believed that he had been the recipient of a miracle, but that believing something does not make it true or real. Finally, angered by his guest's behavior, Olathair bade him leave, and then to continue his interrupted midnight prayer. The emperor simply dropped his psychic veal of disguise, and an astonished Olathair recognized the face he had seen in his vision of God on the killing fields of Gauder. The emperor simply bade the priest to follow, for while he was still baffled by humanity's eternal desire for faith, he had been impressed by Olathair's intelligence and assertiveness, and would gladly offer the man a place in his new world, despite the fact that he had been a priest for the better part of his life. Gazing around dazedly as he was guided outside the church, and the Thunder Warriors opened fire upon it with fire lances and grenades, Olathair at first felt a keen sense of despair, stemming from having lived a lie all his life. But then he reconsidered. Think of all the good he had done and brought to his parishioners. His own personal idea of God might have been false, but the good it had brought was still tangible and very real. His despair made place for a familiar sense of accomplishment, and he listened to his august visitor, who spoke of his grand vision for mankind, and offered Olathair a place in it. For the last time, Olathair gazed into the eyes of the emperor and looked deep into the core of the being who had lived for long millennia, witnessed countless wonders and horrors, and was possessed by an unfathomable sum of knowledge. Olathair saw both the limitless compassion and the ruthless core of violence of a being who ultimately no longer was even remotely human, if he had ever been. A being who truly believed that his absolute vision of the future was just and right, no matter the slaughter or bloodshed its fulfillment might require. A being for whom the ends truly justified the means. Olathair realized that the Emperor simply could not comprehend the human need for faith, for he had never encountered a question he could not answer. Bereft of the need for the reassurances only faith could bring to mortal men and women, the emperor found it a wasteful and extremely dangerous distraction, and Uriah Olathair 
was at a loss on how to explain the comfort it brought to a mere human. Understanding that he could never follow such a being or become part of a new atheistic imperium, Uriah Olather bade the emperor the best and commended his intentions as seeking a better future for mankind, but warned him that his subjects might come to see him as a god if he deprived them of all religion. Their last conversation was a warning to the emperor, a warning he truly did not understand, nor would he ever. Simply stated, Uriah said, Nothing of such grand scale can be achieved without a singular vision at its heart, least of all the reconquest of the galaxy. Didn't you just tell me of the bloody slaughter perpetrated by crusaders? Doesn't that make you no better than the holy men you were just telling me about? The difference is, I know I'm right, said the emperor. <laughs> Spoken like a true autocrat. You misunderstand, Uriah. I've seen the narrow survival path that is all it stands between humanity and extinction, and this is the way it must be. Hmm. It is a dangerous road you travel. To deny humanity a thing will only make the crave it all the more. And if you succeed in this grand vision of yours, what well then? Beware that your subjects do not begin to see you as a god. The emperor nodded sadly, recognizing Ulithar's choice, and simply left, allowing the priest to walk back into the burning sanctuary unmolested. The emperor and his army remained throughout the night as the ancient building collapsed upon itself. A thunderstorm extinguished the flames after dawn, and the emperor and his warriors moved on, leaving the last church on humanity's homeworld a smoldering ruin, and the last priest a charred corpse. Now, while this is a sad moment, Uriah's words became prophetic pretty quickly, and would arise with one of the emperor's very sons, Lorgar Aurelian. Now, on a weird sense of things, Lorgar had faith in the emperor as a god before he even met the man, which I know sounds confusing, but let me explain. Like all the Primarchs, Lorgar was boot-kicked into the galaxy by the gods of chaos and landed on the planet Colchis, which was said to be the world of old gods. To its people, worship of higher powers was as much a part of them as the beating of their hearts and the crying of their children. Bound in feudal traditions, Colchis had once been a world of high technology, but those days lay forgotten in the old night. Life was easy for some and hard for others, and all the people knew the same truths that their fathers had known and their mothers had taught, that disease came in cold generations, but these times would pass for nothing could remain unchanged. The war would come like rain and stain the land with blood, but there were always the promises of joy even when all seemed lost. All men died, and kings fell and new kings rose, but the gods remained. Now, in case you hadn't figured it out, Colchis was a slightly warp-infused world, a place where the four chaos gods were worshipped and the people prayed to them, which ironically seemed to work. I mean, it was kind of weird, actually. No heavy mutations and a strange balance seemed to hold the world. Actually, a very unchaotic chaos world, so to speak. Also, keep in mind, they were not called the chaos gods, but given other names and known as the Covenant. Why this all worked, I have, I have no idea. But like I said, it did seem to work. Now, to make a long story short, Lorgar was discovered by a not very nice priest named Corfera. Not to get into too much detail about this priest, but he was exiled from his order because he thought they were too soft in gaining converts. Meaning the old concept of believe what I say or I kill you. Anyways, despite enduring Corferon's vicious emotional and physical abuses, Lorgar came to fervently believe in the faith of the covenant and researched every aspect of its theology that he could find. 
He came to believe that there was a single God named the One that led and bound together in his being the polytheistic pantheon of the Covenant, which comprised four lesser gods. Corferon dismissed such notions initially as heresy and often abused Lorgar in an attempt to change the young Primarch's personality and create emotional dependency upon him. At the same time, Corferon saw something special in Lorgar and attempted to manipulate him in order to use the boy's obvious extraordinary talents to take over the theocracy of the Covenant and rule over Colchis. Nonetheless, Despite the abuse, Lorgar remained intensely loyal to Corferon, and even saved his life during a mutiny by the caravan's crew after they were asked to beat Lorgar once more by his foster father for some minor transgression. Lorgar also grew close to others in Corferon's caravan of exiles, which included the mercenary captain Exata and the enslaved covenant teacher Nairo. Despite Corferon's abuse, Lorgar quickly surpassed his master. He became a devout preacher, his skills in oratory and the power of his superhuman charisma winning him many followers, allowing him to rise to the position of archpriest of the God Swarm, as the followers of Lorgar's branch of the covenant and believers in the one called themselves. After saving Corferon's life in the mutiny, the priest ended his physical abuse of the Primarch and began to show him some affection. He named Lorgar the new Bearer of the Word. Lorgar's fame spread rapidly thereafter and began liberating slaves across Colchis. He soon mustered an army of faithful zealots and soon conquered the world. Now, for those of you who have been listening to our boxes, this really isn't unusual. Yes, how it was done through a church was unusual, but as far as I've researched, every world that housed a Primarch before the arrival of the Emperor had been taken over in some fashion, before, you know, the Big E got there. What made Colchis interesting was the fact that when the Emperor arrived, the whole planet believed he was the one that Lorgar had been preaching about. Now, the Emperor and his great crusade, Principia Imperialis Expedition Fleet, reached Colchis in 857.m30, less than one local year after Lorgar's final victory over the planet. As the golden-armored Emperor of Mankind descended from his landing craft from the one-eyed Primarch Magnus the Red and two Legion tactical squads of Thousand Sons of Stardes at his side, there could be no doubt in Lorgar's mind that he had finally knelt before his god. Beside him, a planet knelt and believed the same thing. Lorgar saw his preordained meeting as the confirmation of his many visions and prophecies, and so the Primarch of his people wholeheartedly embraced the rule of the Imperium of Man as their promised Messiah and God Emperor. Lorgar gratefully took up the Emperor's purpose, expressing his deeply held desire to spread his faith in the God Emperor to every world in the Imperium. Despite the Emperor's continuing admonishments that his Imperium was to be built on the foundation of the Imperial Truth, an atheistic, rational doctrine that forbade the practice of religious faith as mere superstition. Now, I mentioned that we would go into a little more detail on the imperial truth, and I think this is the perfect time to do so. The imperial truth was pioneered by the emperor on Terra, even before the Great Crusade began. It was an ideology defined by the core values of reason, respect for the methodology of science and secular progress. It was intended to replace the older traditions of the religion, superstition, and faith that had long defined many of the worlds of mankind that had fallen into the darkness during the Age of Strife, after the fall of humanity's first interstellar civilization. At its heart, the imperial truth held that the universe was rational, that knowledge defeated fear, and brought freedom from the terrors of the Age of Strife. With this assertion went the denial of irrational, the superstitious, and faith in powers and principles beyond the knowable. In the unified Terra and Imperium of Man, there could be no mysteries of the soul. No sorcery, no gods. 
Those who clung to their ignorance were cast down, their lies silence in the pyre's roar. The terror of the past had grown into a shadow of superstition and false religious belief. If the human future was to survive its rebirth, it could not tolerate the delusions of the past. There were other dimensions, alien species, and mutants who wielded psychic powers was not denied, only that they were supernatural, that some might call these phenomena sorcery or attribute to them to be gods, were simply the symptoms of an incomplete understanding of reality. Now, keep this in mind, because it will be the downfall of the imperial truth. With the foundation built upon the tenets of the imperial truth, mankind achieved greatness, and though it was not destined to last, for two Terran centuries the Great Crusade was beyond reproach in its methods and in its glorious elevation of humanity to become the dominant species of the galaxy. Of course, there was a degree to which the Imperium and the Emperor touched upon the irrational and ethereal. The new Imperium had grown from humans' past, and secular though it might be, much of its power and nature expressed itself in ways that had echoes of the spiritual. In practices such as taking of oaths of moment, the names and divisions of Imperial power, and the symbols of that power, the Imperium wrapped itself in the clothes of authority woven from dreams that were as old as the gods it had denied. The Imperial Truth also held that humanity was the species which should rightfully rule the galaxy, since its physical form was the most pure of all the other intelligent alien races, such as the Eldari, had already tried and failed to maintain galaxy-spanning civilizations. An important element of the Imperial Truth's ideology was the belief that it was now mankind's turn to find a place in the sun and come to dominance in the Milky Way and that humanity was more deserving of such of a position than any other intelligent species. The Emperor ordered the Imperial Truth to be brought to all worlds of mankind, peacefully at first, but imposed by war if necessary, because the Emperor believed that unity was the only way for humanity to survive and prosper in the face of very hostile universe. If this required the unfortunate use of force against those who refused to understand this necessity, then so be it. While the imperial truth upheld the light of reason and science, it did have one proscription. Humans must never develop artificial intelligent machines. The emperor remembered that it was the great war fought by mankind against the thinking machines known as the men of iron that had helped to destroy humanity's last united interstellar civilization at the end of the age of technology, and he had no desire to see the human race repeat its past mistakes. As such, when the expeditionary fleets of the Great Crusade encountered advanced human civilizations in the dark of space that had developed artificial general intelligence, these world's populations were simply exterminated outright as potential dangers to the entire body politic of the newborn Imperium. The Imperial truth was spread to all the rediscovered human colony worlds during the Great Crusade, taught to the troops of the Imperial Army, spread to the space marine legions, and incalculated amongst the populations of newly discovered and compliant worlds by scores of imperial itinerators. The itinerators were a core of orators of supreme skill and passion who were attached to every expeditionary fleet of the Great Crusade, specifically to spread the imperial truth. This creed only further strengthened the Great Crusade, lending the emperor's symbolic support to all of the scientists, skeptics, and thinkers on whom the Emperor's plans for a united galaxy-spanning humanization hinged. The Emperor needed a new renaissance to begin across the nascent Imperium to see his ambitious dreams for a betterment of mankind fulfilled. 
The Emperor hoped that a new age of science and technological progress would solidify and consolidate the gains he and his warriors had made in achieving a new place for mankind in the galaxy, a restoration of humanity's rightful place as the predominant intelligent species in the young universe. Now, this new thought on life seemed to be working fairly well as far as the Emperor was concerned. Even before he found Lorgar, cracks were beginning to form in the new belief. Uriah's predictions started to come to fruition, and people were starting to see the Emperor as more than just a man. They began to look at him as a protector of godlike proportions, and then they just dropped the pretenses and simply worshipped him as a god in secret. That was before Lorgar. After Lorgar, the Imperium of Man would never be the same. As I mentioned before, Lorgar was a firm believer that the Emperor was, in fact, the god of mankind, come to save them from the horrors of space. In those first few years of the Great Crusade, Lorgar hid his true convictions, knowing of his father's disapproval of his belief, never stating it openly, but also never disavowing it. In all the records of his words in that time, of which there are many, there is endless praise for the Emperor's vision and for the course he charted for mankind, but not one word denouncing the specific belief that the Emperor was divine. The worship of idols, the practice of mysticism, and the falseness of countless gods all were condemned without measure, but on the nature of his lord and father, Lorgar remained silent. Perhaps the most manifest display of his belief was the now infamous Lectitio Divinantis, a document written by Lorgar during the Great Crusade expressing his belief and the rational biases for his belief in the divine nature of the emperor of mankind. <laughs> yeah. That's right, folks. The Lectitio Divinatus, the founding book of the imperial cult, was written by Lorgar Aurelian, the now demon prince of chaos and founder of the Horus Heresy. We'll get to this later, but first, Lorgar has to go off the deep end. And it was the emperor's own insensitivity and arrogance that drove the Primarch to chaos. Oh, and another thing. Lorgar changed before we get to him going cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. <laughs> <clears throat> the Primarch increased the importance of ceremony amongst his warriors of the 17th. The black-clad and skull-helmed heralds of the Old Legion were given new authority to ensure the moral strength of the brother legionaries. These new Legion officers were called chaplains and would be the core of the 17th Legion's strength, showing the way of truth through word and deed, not just to the conquered, but those who held the sword. When a city burned or people were put to death, the deed was done with the solemnity of a rite. The death notice of enemies were spoken in ritual phrases by the chaplain as he scattered the ashes of the dead and defiant worlds over the bowed head of his warriors. Yes, that's right. The office of the chaplain, held by every space marine chapter other than well, you know, the space wolves, who have the wolf priests, which are very similar, yet they were founded when Lehman Russ took up the reins of the sixth, was inspired by Lorgar and his zealous followers. Right, well, getting back to what we were talking about before. Lorgar was determined to spread his own faith in the Emperor to every world that his legion encountered in the course of the Great Crusade, a policy that would be in direct contradiction to the principles of the Imperial Truth. Faith and secrecy might be sincere, but ultimately, it cannot satisfy a driven soul. With the Great Crusade reaching its zenith, Lorgar was faced with worlds brought to compliance by his legion, broken worlds, worlds that had lived under the yoke of aliens, witches, and belief in false gods, worlds that now had nothing but the cold comfort of being united with the universe, that seemed to hold nothing greater than the truth they saw blowing on ashen-laden winds. How could he know the truth and deny it to these worlds? At least that seemed the likely path that led him to make his crusade not one of rationality, but of faith. 
His worlds and star systems fell to the newly christened word bearers. They were brought to believe that the emperor was, in fact, a god. Amidst the devastation, they raised temples. Chaplains and mortal vassal preachers would go amongst the conquered to speak of the god who now reigned over them, producing enormous devotional works on the divinity and righteousness of the emperor. And Lorgar himself delivered countless speeches and sermons, converting millions to the worship of the emperor with his words alone. The foundations of new cities were sunk in the embers of the old. Vast monuments and cathedrals dedicated to the worship of the emperor were erected upon the mounds of corpses belonging to those who had resisted conversion. The worlds they refounded grew and prospered. Their people were utterly loyal to the imperium and the emperor. They were compliant, but they were alone in an unholy land. Though they did not see it, their piety was doomed from the moment the word bearers brought them to it. The rumors came first. Whispers passed between imperial forces who had fought alongside the word bearers. Talk began to circulate of the ritualistic practices of the 17th Legion, and the further of their zeal and the devotion to the Great Crusade. Some even went so far as to wonder if the iconoclasts of old had not succumbed to the superstitious practices they had once persecuted. The rumors multiplied, but if they reached the highest circles of the Imperium, they triggered no action. The Great Crusade was a war of expansion spread across the galaxy. Numberless fleets and hundreds of thousands of armies came into operation, separated by vast distances, and joined only by the tenuous link of the warp travel and astrotelepathy. The sheer scale and dynamism of such an endeavor made absolute knowledge a rare commodity. The Emperor and the Imperium's ruling war council did not have the time or means to do anything but trust that those who led the crusade acted as the Emperor would wish. Rumor, hearsay, and unkind suspicion were not enough to call the motivations of one of the legions into question. At last, it was not talk of belief that brought the word-bearers' wrongs to light, but the arithmetic of conquest. Conquering worlds took time and resources, but rebuilding them and bringing them to believe that the emperor is a god took far longer again. Over the standard years of the crusade, the word-bearers' rate of conquest had begun to slow to a crawl. Where the other legions brought dozens of worlds to imperial compliance, the word-bearers would claim a handful by comparison. The disparity eventually became too much to be ignored. The military bureaucracy that had grown up around the War Council sent expeditions to a cluster of worlds conquered by the word-bearers. Was there some factor that had caused the word-bearers greater difficulties than other legions? The emissaries and expeditions found their answer. The 17th Legion had not been slowed by resistance, but because they lingered after their conquests. The rebuilding of planets' faith and social structures took time, as did the rebuilding of cities and the raising of temples from which the faith could be maintained. And the faith gifted to the worlds they conquered was the belief that the emperor was a god, the one true god of all mankind. During this period, the absolute loyalty of Lorgar and the word-bearer's legion to the emperor and his imperium was unquestionable. Their compliant worlds regularly delivered tithes to the emperor's name, and the orders of Terra were accepted without question throughout the worlds liberated by the word-bearers. Lorgar and his legion had successfully prosecuted the emperor's great crusade for almost a standard century, and in that time the emperor had never once admonished his zealous son or the word-bearer's legion for their fervent worship of him even though such doctrine directly clashed with the emperor's policy of spreading the imperial truth. But the emperor was deeply disturbed. He had initially tolerated the beliefs of his deeply religious son. But as the Great Crusade reached its height, the emperor found himself increasingly frustrated at the slow pace with which Lorgar conquered and then brought worlds into compliance for the Imperium. 
In short, he was okay with it until such beliefs got in the way of progress and efficiency, and then it would not be tolerated. The emperor finally ordered the word bearers to cease their religious activities, as their mission was to reunify the human settled galaxy under the banner of a secular imperial truth, not preach the word of the emperor's personal divinity. The emperor had long opposed the spread of organized religion and was determined to use the creation of the new imperium of man to enshrine reason and science, not religion, as the true guiding light to a new interstellar human civilization. The emperor was particularly troubled by any notion that he should be worshipped as a god, and the actions of the word-bearer's legion in slaughtering those who refused to accept the emperor's divinity stank of the religious excesses that he had so often poisoned humanity's history. Now, once the truth was revealed, it was only a matter of time before the emperor would be moved to censor the word-bearers. The emperor rose from his endeavors and called another of his sons to aid his side, Rabute Gilliman. The Primarch of the 13th Legion had a reputation for careful leadership and unbending honesty. No one else witnessed what passed between the two, and Gilliman refused to speak of it, but it can be speculated why the Emperor chose the Ultramarine Legions to be his tool of censure. It seemed clear that the Emperor did not wish Lorgar or his sons broken, merely set back on the correct path. The Ultramarines Legion were a legion with an exemplary record of victories in compliant worlds. Ultramar was even then a growing realm of hundreds of obedient and prosperous star systems. Across the galaxy, the Ultramarines had pushed back the boundaries of the Imperium with an energy and a mind for what should follow in the wake of war. They were the word bearers mirror and shadow, alike in so many ways and different in so many others. A living example of what the word bearers could be. Perhaps that was the message carried by the choice of the Ultramarines, that there was hope for glory beyond the shame that must come. What other the subtleties of the message of censure, it would, however, be delivered in a manner that could leave no doubt to its meeting. The Emperor ordered a task force composed of the entire Ultramarines Legion and accompanied by a force of his elite personal bodyguards, the Legio Custodes, and the Imperial Regent Malkador the Sigilite, to raise the capital city of the planet Cahur, a world dear to the word bearers, whom considered its capital, Monarchia, the perfect city because of the intense religious devotion of its citizens and the sheer number of cathedrals and monuments dedicated to the worship of the emperor as the god of humanity. Following the city's destruction by the Ultramarines, the entire word bearers legion, a hundred thousand space marines strong, were ordered to assemble at the planet's surface, within sight of the smoldering ruins of Monarchia, where its Astartes were humiliated and rebuked by the emperor himself, who psychically forced everyone, including Lorgar, to kneel before him in the ashes of the city, which stood for all they had believed and done, and explained to them that they had failed both him and humanity. He was no god, and he would suffer no such belief in his realm. Then the emperor departed, leaving the Primarch chastised and his legion humbled. Lorgar was stunned by his father's reproach and refusal to accept his worship, and fell into deep melancholy. Some may say that future generations could see all that would come to pass was born in this moment of despair. Now, real quick, I have to state that if he was trying to express to them that he was not a god, psychically forcing a whole legion and their primarch to kneel before him probably wasn't the right approach. <clears throat> Anyways, crushed by his father's censorship, Lorgar went on a pilgrimage, and the rest, as they say, is history. He held counsel with the Chaos Gods, and then turned traitor, bringing Horus Lupercal into the fold, and then, in turn, the rest of the traitor legions. 
What follows next is one of the most articulated aspects of human history, the Horus Heresy. Now, during this time, the Imperial Truth began to die. Remember, psychers were known as supernatural, just something that couldn't be explained. Yet with the rise of Horus, billions of people got to see firsthand that the superstitions of the past, the folly of demons and dark laughing gods, were actually real. As worlds cascaded into darkness, conditions became ideal for all the evils of space to emerge. Freighters full of refugees would carry within them a melting pot of worshippers of ancient religions, and for surely the first time, many different such cults would mix, each carrying a piece of a larger, more complex black ritual. The sequence of worlds becoming dark would lead to tidal waves of fearful emotion carried by billions of people, which would in turn be reflected in the psychically reactive dimensions of the warp, leading to indiscriminate, large-scale demonic incursions on dozens of worlds. Rebels and cultists across the galaxy threw off the pretense of imperial compliance to challenge their imperial planetary governors, and such distractions to loyal defenders only paved Horus's advance. From the seemingly endless cycle of tragedy and death Horus unleashed, it has become clear to all that at the heart of the imperial truth was a lie. This great lie, promulgated by the emperor who now sits eternal upon his throne, is that a calculated and hidden ignorance within the doctrine of enlightenment. Those possessed of psychic gifts, who had truly seen behind the stars, knew that the lie resided there all along, clearest in the darkness, though they feared to think of it and dared not speak of it. The warp is alive with malignant sentience, and the very essence of which is supernatural. These unquiet spirits, which reside in the warp, sink themselves upon the souls of mortals. Those that remain must examine the consequence of the silence of this topic and toll of what would be called the Great Lie, took upon the Imperium with the outbreak of the Horus Heresy. The first of these consequences may appear now to be the most terrible. The first of these consequences may appear now to be the most terrible, that of Horus's rebellion itself. By turning his face from the light of his father, Horus not only brought ruin to the Imperium, but also empowered the beings of the warp to cross from their eternal realm into real space. There have been other costs incurred by the Great Lie which have undermined the Emperor's dream of Imperium. Many billions of lives were lost in the purges, later required to maintain it. Ancient civilizations directly descended from old earth, who carried with them across the cosmos the torch of religions deemed unnecessary in this enlightened age, were simply murdered for their beliefs. Tens of thousands of cities were burned, cultures were put to the sword, and worlds were annihilated in the name of the imperial truth. Ignorance was promoted hand in hand with enlightenment across the stars. The stability and safety of ignorance was used as a tool, an opiate, to the blissful masses, though which they would remain unquestioning. With ignorance and death as the tools used to promote wisdom, the Great Crusade ultimately made vulnerable the very foundations of the Imperium. When push came to shove, it made possible the later use of the ignorance of blind faith as a political weapon against the humanity itself. There is a final and more dire consequence, one which revealed itself in the due course of time. A greater war had begun with the end of the Horus heresy, which blighted the future of mankind. Once son had turned upon father, brother upon brother, and the Imperium's greatest defenders had been brought to their knees, humanity could never attain the greatness of galactic dominance that the Emperor had intended for mankind. Therein lay the problem, for in his reckless ambition, Horus mortally wounded the Imperium. The threat of the alien, which the Imperium spent two Terran centuries casting from its growing borders during the Great Crusade, had received a great reprieve. 
Moreover, the very fabric of reality had been altered, and terrors previously unknown to humanity had turned their eye upon the domain of man. The Xenos and the demon could not allow the Imperium to recover the might of its golden age. From the heresy forwards, they have always sought to bring mankind low, for humanity's weakness kept them strong. They would forever after circle the wounded Imperium looking for every crack in its defenses to bring it one step closer to destruction. Though the learned now question the complex and delicate balance of the philosophies of the imperial truth put into motion, for all that came to pass, the emperor was no fool. He was without a doubt aware of the hypocrisies fundamental to the tenets of the imperial truth. That the entities within the immaterium posed a danger to the imperium is without question, but to suppress their nature rather than to educate his subjects, to deny enlightenment in what he had hoped to become the age of enlightenment, cannot have been a path lightly trod. It can only be concluded the emperor was aware of the risks and enacted a calculated strategy to protect his greater purpose. The need for the great lie is a matter of some speculation. Some have argued that the emperor's goal was to defeat death itself by exercising the soul and that knowledge of the existence of the soul within the warp would be humanity's downfall. Others thought that he sought to enter the mind of every human being in the galaxy and alternately impart his phenomenal knowledge or his psychic gifts, creating an ultimate ascended race of mankind. Yet others have quietly suspected that he wished nothing more than dominion over all of reality and unreality and hid the supernatural nature of unreality such that no being would dare challenge his claim upon it. Darker rumors, those which were whispered during the days of the Emperor's seclusion on Terra to construct the Webway project, surmised that he sought to reach the apotheosis of godhood for himself, leaving mankind behind with a cold revelation that the imperial truth was a lie and the gods very real. Whatever the case, it was clear to the Imperium that his retreat to Terra at the pinnacle of the Great Crusade after the Ulanor Crusade, as well as the endless parade of people and machines descending into the Imperial dungeon beneath the Imperial Palace, that some vast and intensive artifice was underway, which served only to fuel further speculation. It may even have been the entirety of the Great Crusade served only to acquire the mysteries and materials required to meet another objective and that the imperial truth was simply a means to an end, never intended to withstand a test such as that which Horus's traitors brought against it. Knowledge could have been mankind's greatest weapon. The sword of knowledge racing across the stars with the great crusade could have empowered humanity to know the demon and to combat its insidious presence. The shield of ignorance with which the emperor hoped to protect mankind could only ever stymie the flood of darkness, never halt its onslaught. It frayed and buckled, as any shield is wont to, with the hammering of the enemy upon it. The Emperor's gamble with the fate of humanity was ultimately a failure, and his denial of the true nature of the warp a mistake. The Emperor could have stopped all of this, Horus's rebellion, the ascendance of the warp, and the nearer ruination of the Imperium, if, if he had only told his sons and his subjects the truth. Though the Emperor's plan may have failed, surely no one, alive or dead, could have known more of the consequences of decisions. Though the Emperor's plan may have failed, surely no one, alive or dead, could have known more of the consequences of his decisions. Had others known what the Emperor did, it is an open question whether they might have produced a better outcome. Regardless, as the Imperial truth was in its death throes, the life of it being strangled out by Horus, the Imperial cult and the ecclesiarchy began to take shape. And it wasn't long after the death of Horus and the Emperor's ascent into the Golden Throne that it began to form. 
To make the emperor a god was a simple shift for most, and Lorgar had penned the rules and dictations for the new religion in the Lactetio Divinanus. Remember? After the heresy, this new imperial cult hung on the coattails of the Great Scouring and shot out into the entirety of the Imperium of Man. Now, we will fast forward this part because I've already covered it in a short vox called The Rise of the Ecclesiarchy. Uh, feel free to check it out. But we will skip forward into the 32nd millennium, where the imperial cult was finally recognized as the official state religion of the Imperium and granted the official governmental title of the Adeptus Ministorum, though it continued to be referred to informally as the Ecclesiarchy, and incorporated into the Adeptus Terra once the High Lords of Terra realized how useful the religion could be in protecting, unifying, and energizing the citizens of the Imperium from the myriad dangers of the galaxy. Remaining religious cults, which differed in their primary theology from the imperial creed taught by the ecclesiarchy, such as the temple's one-time theological rival, the Confederation of Light, such as the temple's one-time theological rival, the Confederation of Light, were persecuted and mostly destroyed by the first of the wars of faith called by the Ministorum. A few centuries later, in the middle of the 32nd millennium, ecclesiarchy Venerus II received a seat amongst the High Lords of Terra on the Senatorium Imperialis, and after 300 Terran years, this seat was made permanent. Now this is where things start to get interesting. I say this because the concept of the High Lords of Terra using the Imperial cult as a tool to tame the populace started out well, but their mistake was once the Ecclesiarchy had a seat at the table, they were no longer a tool they could use. True, they now had even more power over the people thanks to the official status. But it wouldn't take long for the leaders of the Imperial cult to realize that the power of humanity was in their hands now, and they slowly began to use it. The political power of the ecclesiarchy within the Imperium continued to grow, increasing its holds over the minds and belief of the Imperial citizenry. Those who would not follow its teachings were declared unbelievers and heretics, ostracized, and on occasion even executed. These vast interstellar territories and the Imperium were organized into dioceses, led by the Ecclesiarchy's cardinals. These powerful religious and political figures were responsible for missionaries and preachers on hundreds of worlds. Lavish shrines, impressive temples, and majestic cathedrals dedicated to the god-emperor of mankind were built throughout the Imperium. Millions of religious pilgrims soon began making their way across the galaxy to visit particular important religious locations, such as the world where the particular imperial saint had performed their most famous miracle. In time, the sheer number of pilgrims who arrived on certain worlds became an economic activity. In itself, and entire planets were dedicated to worship and directly ruled by the Adeptus Ministorum as shrine worlds. Particularly important shrine worlds could become the religious seat of an entire diocese, and so a cardinal would take up residence there. These planets became known as cardinal worlds. The only threat of the theological domination of the ecclesiarchy had ever been the Confederation of Light. Based upon the planet of Demimar, this penitent sect's ideals of poverty, selflessness, and humble living clearly contradicted the dominant teachings of the ecclesiarchy, whose view was that sacrifices of wealth and money to the Adeptus Ministorum and taxes, tithes, and other gifts were necessary to enhance imperial citizens' access to salvation and ensure that the emperor's light reached every corner of the galaxy through his missions. In truth, the Confederation's theology directly opposed the efforts of the ecclesiarch and the cardinals in their attempt to ensure that the ecclesiarchy remained the wealthiest and most politically powerful institution of the Imperium. The confederation proved too difficult for the ministerium agents to infiltrate, and the ecclesiarchy of the time turned to violence, 
supported in their effort by a unanimous vote of the Senatorium Imperialis, who declared the onset of the First War of Faith in the 32nd millennium, largely to ensure that the imperial political stability was not damaged by the emergence of religious plurality. The entire confederation was declared heretical, and the forces of the Austro Militarum, the Imperial Navy, and thousands of fanatical zealots from the Fraturus Templar were unleashed upon it, bent on its destruction. Only a few cells of hidden shrines of the confederation managed to survive, and the power of the ecclesiarchy over the minds of humanity, for better or worse, was made unassailable. By the end of the 33rd millennium, every imperial world was furnished with its own cathedral, and the coffers of the ecclesiarchy were filled with the offerings and tithes from teeming billions of the god-emperor's faithful. This wealth was squandered by building additional, even larger and more lavish churches and cathedrals, and to fund wars of faith intended not to save the souls of humanity, but to secure the ecclesiarchy's political power and wealth. This all came to a head in the 36th millennium, an age which is known as the Age of Apostasy. By this point, the High Lords of Terror realized their folly. They left the door open to the coop and ushered the fox inside. This age is considered one of the more destabling times of the Imperium. It's up there with the War of the Beast, the Long War, and even the Horus Heresy. High Lord George Van Deer, the 361st Master of the Administratum, was a power-hungry tyrant who eventually gained direct control over the ecclesiarchy as well as the administratum by usurping the positions of the ecclesiarch. This made him the most powerful individual in the Imperium and allowed him to place his own will above even that of the emperor. His time and power became known as the Reign of Blood, consisting of massive purges of the ecclesiarchy and the killings and assassinations of countless perceived traitors and conspirators. This period was eventually ended by the reforming ecclesiarch Sebastian Thor's reborn confederation of light, a sect of the imperial cult that sought to end George Van Deer's corruption of the imperial theology. The apostasy ultimately resulted in the major reformation of the ecclesiarchy, the creation of the inquisition's Ordo Hereticus to police those enemies of the imperium who lay within its own structures, and the founding of the Adeptus Sororitas, to serve as both the ecclesiarchy's new military forces and the chamber militant of the Ordo Hereticus. The new theology of the ecclesiarchy, now informed by the beliefs and practices of the Confederation of Light, turned away from the accumulation of wealth and power by the church as an ultimate sign of the emperor's favor. Instead, Thor emphasized the spiritual health of the church's believers, the tenets of compassion and self-sacrifice. The Adeptus Ministorum remained immensely powerful as a political institution in the Imperium after the Age of Apostasy, but it no longer dominated the Imperium's leadership in quite the same way, its ecclesiarch serving as just one more voice of influence upon the Senatorium Imperialis. And that is where it stands today. Yet before I give my conclusion, I must really quickly explain the core values of the Imperial cult, known as the Imperial Creed. Now, the doctrinal tenets of the imperial cult, known as the Imperial Creed, can actually be highly flexible and are tailored by the Adeptus Ministorum's missionaries to fit the native culture, existing religion, and cultural practices of whatever world it exists upon. As such, the imperial cult practices adhered to on one world within the Imperium may be held as abhorrent on another. The Adeptus Ministorum tolerates these vast range of practices and beliefs among the imperial worshippers, as it would be impossible to maintain the faith by a rigid adherence to a standardized orthodoxy across the more than one million worlds that compromise the Imperium of Man. However, 
the ecclesiarchy does enforce several basic tenets of the imperial creed, deviations from which is considered heresy. These tenets include the following beliefs. 1. That the god-emperor of mankind once walked amongst mortal men and women in a physical form identical to theirs, and that he is, and always has been, the one true god of humanity. 2. That the god-emperor is the one true god of mankind, regardless of the previous beliefs held by any man or woman. 3. It is the duty of the faithful to purge the heretic. Beware the psyker, the witch, the sorcerer, and the mutant and abhor the alien. 4. Every human being has a place within the god-emperor's divine order, which is not to be questioned once made manifest. 5. It is the duty of the faithful to unquestionably obey the authority of the imperial government and their superiors, who speak in the divine emperor's name. Now, aside from these central tenets of the imperial creed, there exists a great body of both sanctioned and unsanctioned additional dogma, which varies from sector to sector and world to world, and is subject to a constant debate within the ministerium's hierarchy. If you notice this creed, while simple, is highly destructive to one thing that any civilization in the Milky Way needs to dominate, and that is curiosity and technology. It is a true stranglehold on humanity. The fact that it is so worked into the government that any ideas outside the cult are dealt as heresy, and therefore death, and as we roll into my conclusion, that is my problem with the cult. While it has kept humanity together for the last 10,000 years, it is also the cankerous sore that leaves humanity crippled and unable to shake off the weight of their enemies. As I've mentioned in previous boxes, most of which you can find in my short boxes about the Great Scouring, if Rebute Gilliman had survived the Great Scouring, perhaps he would have crushed this faith before it got too large. But we will never know. Now mind, I am in no way saying faith is a bad thing. Far from it. He who shall not be named designed the race of humanity in such a way that they require faith, yet they have yet to find what they're truly searching for. The hundreds of thousands of religions of humanity's past have all been in search of something greater, and the closest they have gotten so far was the emperor, when he shook off religion in search of greatness. Yet even he too was looking for something. Now mind you, he was sorely misguided, and the fact that what he was looking for was either A, freedom of humanity's need for the warp, or B, well, godhood. Honestly, it's hard to tell with that guy. He kept a lot of things pretty close to the chest. Perhaps if he had sealed the entities of the warp, he would have discovered that he had yet to find what he was really looking for. But at this point, we will never know. But getting back to my point, the imperial cult is just another religion in a long line of religions that started out as a decent concept, but have turned into hindrance. Perhaps now that Rebute Gilman is back in control, he will eventually dissolve the cult, and humanity will once again search for the true faith that their kind needs. Now, in my humble opinion, the sooner this happens, the better, because I'm eager for humanity to take its next step, hopefully in the right direction. Well... I hate to say it, but my time is up, and I better get out of here before I start preaching myself. If you enjoyed this bonus box, please like, subscribe, follow, and comment. And as always, <clears throat> until next time, this is Zekthar, signing off.